Hi, I'm George Borarki, and this is Cityscape. If you're like me, some of your fondest memories revolve around food, whether it be a birthday dinner with friends or cooking in the kitchen with grandma. Our first guest relates to that. Roseanne Gold is a chef, author, journalist, philanthropist, and now a podcast host. Her podcast is called One Woman Kitchen. Each episode features a woman making a unique impact in the culinary world. Roseanne, thanks for joining me. It's so great to be here. Thank you. Tell us about the podcast. Well, you know, the name is really a metaphor for what women in particular, everyone in, in the food world, I think, has had to carve out their own space in some way. But this is mostly true for women. When I got started 40 years ago, there were very few women cooking uh, who were chefs. It just wasn't a prestigious thing to do. And we really had to carve, I keep on using that word, but carve out our own path, our own journey to be seen and respected um, in the food world. And over the last 40 years, you know, a lot has happened. And one of the reasons for the show was to give voice to many women who are not quite so famous yet, but to have a platform to, to share their stories because there's just so much interest in, in being a woman in the food world today. And, and I think it's really a, a great moment for us. I also say that the show is very inclusive, diversive, intergenerational, and also now international. Are there common questions that you ask of all of them that you really want to know of these women? I talk about strengths. I talk about weaknesses. On occasion, I will ask about their experiences with men, you know, because of the whole Me Too movement. And that's gotten many different responses. I mean, one woman just said men have been just extraordinarily helpful to her, and she has no comment because it's just been a very good experience, whereas, you know, others have a different experience, including myself. Um, So we do broach that a little bit. We definitely want to go back to childhood and to identify that one woman in the kitchen for each person, uh, who that was, you know, where the inspiration came from. We talk about food memories. We talk about, um, well, the most important question is actually the one that comes at the very, very end, and that is asking everyone what one woman kitchen means to them in particular. And these answers are coming out like poetry. It's so beautiful because it means something completely different to everyone. For some, uh, one woman said that the one-woman kitchen for her meant the hundreds of women who came before her, which I just loved. Uh, Another person talked about uh, one-woman kitchen just meant a sense of great power and control. So, you know, every woman has a very different response. Who are among the guests you've had so far? Well, Julia Tertian, who is a really fantastic cookbook author and someone I had actually been dying to meet, (laughs) so this was a great way to do it. It's fun to meet in the studio and just, you know, face-to-face and get to talk to a perfect stranger, but whose work you've admired. Uh, Anita Lowe, who was always one of my uh, great heroes, she was one of the first really important women chefs, a Michelin star chef, who just became an author. Uh, June Hirsch is a cookbook author. Uh, Priya Krishna, I call her the new It Girl. She writes for the New York Times and the New Yorker, and she had a wonderful new cookbook come out. So we have someone coming on soon from the Paris Review, because I want to look at this show as kind of a mashup of the culinary and the literary. That's important to me, and I don't think anyone's really doing that. And they go hand in hand, the idea of cooking and writing about food, and the food voice is something that 
is of great interest to me. That's what you've been doing for a long time now, cooking and writing, right? And talking and eating <laughs> <laughs> and exploring and, and anticipating trends. You know, that's kind of what I'm known for. I really think of myself as, as a futurist in, in many ways. And, you know, when I was very young, I wound up living at Gracie Mansion. I was 23 years old and the chef to Mayor Koch. Now, no one had done that before. Yeah, you were a first. Yes, I, I kind of like that. Uh, it's a little risky. Um, what happens with that sometimes is there's an expression that used to be used for my boss, Joe Baum, who was kind of known as the most important restaurateur of the last century. And he was often called too previous, meaning that he was just a little bit ahead of the curve and would do things that would be widely copied and, of course, very often he never got the credit for it. So I, I suffer in the same way. But it's also very exciting to uh, be the first to do many things. And I think one of the biggest changes that I've seen in the food world from 40 years ago, of course, is the inclusion of, of women in all spheres. Um, and women are very entrepreneurial. So whereas men might have made a more limited choice of being a chef or a hotel chef, uh, they stayed in more narrow lanes, and women are just incredibly entrepreneurial. And women have also become major activists, using food to tell larger stories and to really become much more humanitarian. One of my major meaningful experiences along the way, I mean, I've done many things. I was the consulting chef to the Rainbow Room and Windows on the World, and I invented Hudson River cuisine. I, I invented And the phrase medrim. That's right, right. There was a restaurant called Cafe Greco that if you look at the menu today, it looks like it just opened, and this was in the late 80s. I kind of was among the first to presage the use of all of these wonderful uh, ingredients from the, from the Middle East, specifically Israel. Um, but right after Hurricane Sandy, I established a pop-up kitchen in Brooklyn and to help those in need. It never really got a lot of attention, but I was so proud of it because I never missed a day. I worked there for a year and a half every morning. How many meals would you say you served over that time? (laughs) Well, approximately 185,000. Wow. Mm Wow. It was such an amazing story because um, the rabbi, the very morning after Hurricane Sandy, didn't really know much about us or what we did, but called me and my husband and said, you know, I want to do something. I want to help all the people who don't have food, don't know where to go, are just really at a loss. So I said to my husband, well, let's go shopping. (laughs) So we went to Key Food and, you know, bought some provisions. And then once we got to um, the synagogue, which is where the kitchen, had a very professional kitchen, which is where we set this up, there were about 100 people waiting in line just to do something, right? Everyone really came together during that really kind of a tragedy. I mean, it really, many people suffered, I think, more than we even realized. But I was thinking, what, what can we do here? So I said, you know, everyone can bring a loaf of bread, and everyone can boil a dozen eggs. So the next day, <laughs> I think we had 10,000, <laughs> you know, boiled eggs and, you know, like uh, 200 loaves of bread, and we just started making egg salad sandwiches, and, you know, and that's how it started. But it's amazing, right? It's almost like a stone soup story, <laughs> just um, what people can do when they come together. You have such a storied history in the food industry, but you were initially on a path to a graduate degree in sexual studies. How did you get diverted from that path? 
did you find that out? <laughs> no, that's I, I actually love telling this story. It's true. So I went to college to become a psychologist. That's really what I thought I was going to do. And then um, in the 70s, it was a time that Dr. Ruth was becoming popular and Masters and Johnson. And, you know, on Broadway, there was the play Hair. This was the sexual revolution. I mean, this was really important. It's like the food revolution of today, but then it was the sexual revolution. And I was in graduate school um, getting a graduate degree in human sexuality. And uh, after a semester, I just dropped out and decided I like food better. (laughs) So I told my parents that I was dropping out of grad school and that I was just going to cook in New York kitchens. How did that go over? (laughs) Well, they remained my parents. (laughs) I think my mother was much more uh, supportive of my doing this. I think my father really just wanted me to be a teacher and, you know, have a secure life. But, you know, a year later when they came to visit me at Gracie Mansion, because that's where I was living, I think think they said, oh, I think she's onto something. Uh, And then years later, my father would often say, how did you know? How did you know? Mm. But uh, it was pretty clear to me that food was going to become very important. You lived in the basement of Gracie Mansion, right? I did. It was a very lonely place. You know, I made $200 a week. I was on call 24-7. And uh, look, I was 24 years old, so I had a lot of spunk and ambition. I guess I cooked, you know, well enough, but it it really had its challenges. Uh, Very often, you know, the mayor would come in and bring, like, another 10 people with him (laughs) for dinner. He might have said, you know, I'm coming home with 10 and and walking with 20. So it was a very homey kitchen. It wasn't professional. We really didn't have professional equipment. And there were only two other people in the house who lived with me, and we'd really have to scramble sometimes. (laughs) What did Mayor Ed Koch like to eat? Well, I think most people remember that he loved Chinese food. Mm -hmm. But he would go out for that because I didn't know how to make that very well, and I still don't. But he loved uh, anything with garlic. I remember very fondly the first dinner I cooked, he planned the menu. And and it was for the East Coast mayors. I think there were a couple of dozen mayors who were coming to Gracie Mansion to have dinner. And again, this was when he first got into office, so we were all new. But he wanted to have a split pea soup, fried chicken, a green salad, I'm sure there was some other vegetable. I don't remember what it was. And chocolate mousse. Hmm. So that was, my, that was my first meal. Where did you hone your craft, your cooking craft? I think it started in my head and by reading. You know, it's amazing how much you can learn by reading about food and reading cookbooks. And, you know, from a very young age, I know I'm not alone in this, but, you know, I love sitting in bed and reading cookbooks and food magazines and just, you know, like electricity and lights and creativity would just go off in my head. But I was always experimenting when I was very young at home. And I love being with my mother in the kitchen and also my father. They both cooked very differently. We were also a real restaurant going out kind of family. So that was, our entertainment, that's what we love to do. And then very self-taught in many ways, like many of us were in the in the mid-70s. See, this wasn't really a career path for most people. And what was happening 
Well, again, it has to do with the 70s and, you know, Woodstock and peace and love and getting back to the land and Arlo Guthrie and Alice's mm-hmm. Restaurant and the Moosewood cookbooks. I mean, this is, you know, Patti Smith and, and Bob Dylan. It, it just was such a different time. But it was also a time in New York where... Uh, going out meant sophisticated restaurants that were generally French or a combination of French and Italian, and that would be known as continental food. And all of those restaurants were pretty much the same. And then there was a new generation of chefs who started to do very inventive things in the food space and create really what is now considered American food or uh, American regional food even. What are you most excited about now in the food space? Mm, Wow. (laughs) I'm excited about the new generation who are using food in in different ways and the activism and really addressing uh, farming, sustainability, hunger issues. Having the unrepresented or or the underrepresented people um, become part of the culinary world, whether Sitting in restaurants, you know, I'm so interested in having a much more diverse population when we go out to eat, certainly to see many different groups writing about food. And we just need to be more diverse and more inclusive. So I'm very excited about that. I'm very excited about people eating from their own zip code, you know, (laughs) whether it's having a window box and growing your own herbs if you don't have any land or just becoming connected to the provenance of your ingredients which was not so um, desirable when I was going out to eat. That was more about how many stars and who the chef was, and it had more to do with sort of prestige. And I think today it has more to do with meaning, meaning-making. And you don't need a lot of ingredients. You are the woman behind the three-ingredient <laughs> recipes. <laughs> yes. So I do not want this on my tombstone. (laughs) (laughs) This is my biggest fear. It's just going to say one, two, three. So, yes, I wrote a book. Uh, The first book I actually wrote was called Little Meals, A Great New Way to Eat and Cook, which kind of started the grazing craze in America. And then my next book was called Recipes One, Two, Three. And even though it sounds very simple and simplistic, it's actually a very sophisticated idea about how to approach food and cooking. And I look at three ingredients like a chord of music. Um, you know, you get three notes perfectly, and they're in harmony, and they work. And, and it's, it's about exploiting every ingredient to the max. You know, there's a lot of interest now in, in zero waste and, and not throwing anything away. But way back then, so my, that book came out in 1996, I was using a, asparagus peelings and carrot tops and doing a lot of things uh, that people, using things that people might throw away because I only had three ingredients to work with. So it was a really interesting way to explore ingredients as well. I mean, if you think of an asparagus, right, if you roast it, poach it, boil it, um, kind of julienne it and eat it raw, they all taste completely different. So, like, which is the true taste? And some recipes would actually have one ingredient cooked several different ways. So it was just a very interesting uh, idea. And it caught on so much that there was a column in the New York Times that was actually based on that book called The Minimalist. And it was actually offered to me first, and I needed to turn it down for a variety of reasons. Sometimes I really regret that. But uh, I did go on to write another nine books that focused on using only three ingredients. 
When you've accomplished so much in the course of your career, when you look back, what would you say is your proudest accomplishment? It's yet to come. Hmm. Actually, I think what I'm the most proud of is kind of evolving and moving along, you know, as I get older and as I have new interests. So I became a mother very, very late in life. Uh, The first time anyone called me mom, I was 53 years old. Mm -hmm. So I adopted, my husband and I adopted an 11 and a half year old girl, a wonderful girl, who is now 23 and, you know, doing well. I went back to school to get an MFA in poetry because I care a lot about poetry and food and see a big connection between chefs and poets. And I actually teach about that now at the new school. But most important to me is that I've become an end-of-life doula, uh, which is a course of study that I have you know, embarked on for the last many years and am now embracing the idea of what spiritual nourishment looks like, kind of nourishment in the absence of food. Mm. So this has been my, uh, my journey, my 40-year journey. And what's coming up on the podcast? Ah, okay. So I'm very excited. We have, and again, a few people that I've never really met, Valerie Stivers, who writes for the Paris Review, and she writes a column called Eat Your Words. Uh, Helen Rossner, who is a writer for The New Yorker, uh, is coming on. Uh, The interview with Anita Lowe should be airing soon. So, um, you know, it's, it's a work in progress. Well, the podcast is One Woman Kitchen. Roseanne, thank you so much for your time. I thank you. You can find Roseanne Gold's podcast, One Woman Kitchen, at onewomankitchenshow.com. We recently had the chance to talk with one of Roseanne's guests on One Woman Kitchen, Priya Krishna. Priya is a regular contributor for The New York Times, Bon Appetit, The New Yorker, and others. She's also the author of a new cookbook called Indianish, Recipes and Antics from a Modern American Family. It's filled with Indian-American hybrid dishes inspired by her own mother's cooking. Priya, thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you so much for having me. So let me ask you first about the ish in Indian-ish. Why the ish? Well, I was not born and raised in India. I was born and raised in America. My parents were born and raised in India. So the food that my mom learned to to cook when she immigrated here, because she taught herself to cook only when she immigrated to the U.S., was not strictly Indian. You know, it mixed the ingredients she was finding in American grocery stores, like olive oil and feta and pizza. So, you know, I wanted to show that you know, the food that we're cooking is Indian food, but it's also American food, and that those things aren't mutually exclusive. Now, your mom actually wasn't a cook, though, back in India, right? This is something she learned to do in the U.S. Yeah, yeah. She only learned to cook once she moved. How unusual is that? Um, Well, to be frank, I'm not sure, but, you know, my mom's mom just couldn't care less about cooking. She... You know, she certainly had really strong professional aspirations in the society in India where my mom was growing up. That wasn't necessarily possible for a woman. I mean, my mom would watch my mom, my her her grandmother cooking, but but didn't really learn herself. And her mom wasn't wasn't dying for my mom to learn either. So essentially, this cookbook is a tribute to your mom, right? Yes, and to my whole family, really. How did your mom teach herself to cook? 
well, she kind of started with the memories of her mom and her grandmother's minimal cooking. She watched a ton of those PBS cooking shows like Jack Pepin, Martin Yan, and Julia Child. Um, I remember she purchased cookbooks from, you know, Indian authors like Tharla Dalal, who specifically were focused on bringing Western food to Indian palates. And she just sort of taught herself dish by dish. And, you know, I think one thing that my mom realized is that she had a real intuition when it came to cooking and flavor. She kind of knew what was supposed to go together. I think that there is something about a really good cook that can't be taught, something that you're just kind of born with. And I think my mom was born with that cooking gene. Your mom also traveled a lot for work, right? Did that influence how she cooked, what she learned during her travels? Yeah, definitely. She was a software engineer for the airline industry. So she was traveling, you know, to everywhere from South Africa to London to, you know, France. And oftentimes she would take us with her. So she would try a really amazing dish and come home and want to recreate it. What's an example of a dish that she recreated? So she absolutely loved pub food in London you know, the food that you'd get and have with a beer, but not a lot of it was vegetarian. So her favorite pub breakfast was like, you know, your classic plate of baked beans and toast and mushrooms that you and eggs and you eat it all together. And my mom came up with a version, but she doctored up the baked beans with chaat masala and ginger and seared the tomatoes until they were almost burnt. And, you know, topped the bread with butter and alu bujia, which are these sort of like savory, spicy sprinkles from Indian grocery stores. So she kind of took that London food and, and recreated it to her own taste. Now, you grew up in Dallas. Did living in Texas influence your mom's cooking? It did. I think like less in the obvious ways. You know, we weren't doing like like Indian barbecue or anything like that. But I think my mom was really excited when she moved to Texas by how multicultural the city was. So we were very regularly going out and eating Vietnamese food, Korean food, Mexican food, and exploring all of the immigrant communities in Dallas. And so, you know, there are little hints of that. I think living in Dallas more than anything and traveling the world sort of gave my mom this really global view of the world. And I think she approaches cooking in that way. Did you appreciate your mom's cooking while you were growing up? Oh, certainly not. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I was like every, you know, angsty kid growing up who, you know, I was thankful that my mom cooked us fresh food every night, but all I wanted was to eat what all my friends ate, and they were eating spaghetti and roast chicken and boiled vegetables. I just wanted to eat what they ate. I wanted to fit in, and so... You know, my mom would lovingly make dal chowl and she would pack it for everyone for lunch. And I would beg her to not pack it for my lunch. I would beg her to make me a peanut butter and jelly sandwich instead. And did she change based on your begging? She did. And, you know, I think that, like, in a way, my desire to fit in really made me push my mom towards sort of going outside of her comfort zone. But at the same time, You know, that's how dishes like roti pizza were formed, where, you know, I really wanted pizza for dinner. And so my mom made it on roti. And we realized that that was that was really good. What do you think are among the common misconceptions when it comes to everyday Indian food? I mean, I feel like 
people think that Indian food that you eat at home is like what you find at restaurants, that it's heavy, it's complicated, it's, you know, has a million ingredients, that it'll have make you have to run to the bathroom and that you have to go to a specialty grocery store to find that. But, I mean, that just simply wasn't the case for us. I mean, a lot of the ingredients in my cookbook you can now find in most grocery stores. And this is the food of my mom, who is a, a working mother. So, you know, she wasn't standing over the stove all day because she didn't have time. She only had 20 minutes to make dinner oftentimes. And so this is the food that she made within those constraints. You banned the word curry from your cookbook. How come? I really, really, really hate that word. I It was basically a word that was popularized by European colonizers and sort of used to reduce Indian flavors and Indian cooking, which is really breathtaking in its diversity. There's so many different regions down to a monolith, a single word. You know, you think of curry, you think of this monochromatic gravy with pieces of meat floating in it. But that is a very, very specific slice of one type of Indian cuisine. And Indian dishes, like any dish, have actual names. But instead, people call everything egg curry or vegetable curry. Like, all those dishes have names. Why can't we call the dishes by their names and acknowledge, you know, the regional diversity within the cuisine? I feel like that word has just done us such a disservice. What's shank, and why is it vital to Indian cooking? It is oil. It's spices and or herbs that have been tempered in oil or ghee, and they sort of add this layer of amazing complexity and richness to a dish. And, you know, the crunch of the spices, the, the sort of boldness of the flavor, they really, by, by activating spices and oil, you really bring out their aromatics and their flavor. You can put that over a you know, pot of dal, and it'll just bring it alive. But you can even use it in non-Indian settings, like nachos or noodles or a steak. What are among your fondest memories cooking with your mom? Did you spend time in the kitchen with her like she did with her grandmother? Yep. I wasn't all that into cooking, but I loved tasting everything that my mom made and just watching her kind of work her magic in front of the stove. It was like, even though outside of the home, I was kind of embarrassed of Indian food. I think inside of it, I was I was really fascinated by it. What inspired you to get into food writing? I feel like I realized pretty early on that, that I was more than just a passing interest. I had a food column in my college newspaper where I figured out how to, how to take the ingredients in your dining hall and make that into, you know, really gourmet meals, basically. And from that, I was able to work at a magazine called Lucky Peach that doesn't exist anymore. And I really learned how to storytell around food. And yeah, I just love that that's what I get to do every day. What inspired you to take the step to bring in your family and to include these recipes? Well, the book, I was actually approached by another editor. My mom had contributed recipes to a Lucky Peach cookbook, and she had just fallen in love with those recipes. She said that there didn't exist a book that was sort of explicitly aimed at providing simple, accessible, everyday Indian recipes, and that also told a really modern story about an American family, a first-gen, second-gen family where, you know, the parents are immigrants, the kids were born and raised in the U.S. And I felt really confident that I could tell my mom's stories and I felt confident in her recipes. How did you settle on the recipes in your book? Just a lot of back and forth with my mom and me, a ton of recipe testing. I had 100 
friends and colleagues, most of whom were not experienced in Indian food, test the recipes and give feedback. I cut the ones that got mixed responses and only kept in the greatest hits. Now, you returned to your parents' kitchen in Dallas to work on this book, correct? Yeah, I I moved home to recipe test for about a month. What was that like? Really stressful. Really, really, really stressful. I would definitely recommend any cookbook authors to space out the recipe testing, not over a month. I was cooking like six dishes a day, and every day my mom would come home and <laughs> and taste everything and tell me everything I'd done wrong, and it was just, it was it was really tough, but, you know, I'm really glad that we went through that because I feel like the recipes were so rigor- rigorously put through the ringer. But I understand your dad did all of the dishes. True? Yes. Oh, my gosh. What a saint, that man. <laughs> he was like a silent ninja with the dishes. He was so good. What are among your favorite recipes in the book? I love the roti pizza, which is like an Indianish grilled cheese. I love the... Sog feta, which is like a sog paneer, but you swap out feta, and it's ingenious. I love the dal that's topped with caramelized onions and chilies. You were saying this earlier that you are really hoping that people see this book and understand, hey, it does not need to be a complicated situation for you if you want to cook Indian food at home. So what would you tell someone who still feels intimidated? Hey, I'm not sure I can sort of take this on on my own. Read my book. I mean, a lot of the dishes are three ingredients, four ingredients, five ingredients. Uh, People think that every Indian is grinding up a spice blend for every dish and making their own roti. Most of the dishes in my book don't require any spice blend. Some dishes don't require any spices at all. And we buy our rotis from the store. It's not as hard as you may think. The book is called Indianish Recipes and Antics from a Modern American Family. Priya Krishna, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. You can find Priya online at priyakrishna.me. I'm George Bodarki. My thanks to producer Maddie Bristow. And thank you so much for listening. <laughs>